it's nice to see people back. Um, welcome back, Peter, Renzo, etc. Hi, Stuart. Hi. Okay. Well, um, we might as well just uh, just dive in as usual. Any questions before we uh, head off into the the yonder? Okay. So um, the institute uh, made a mistake uh, last week. Um, we screened the alleged documentary about Thomas Piketty's book. And um, it was a tour de force in awfulness. It, uh, it was really amazing. It was, it was just like one of those learning channel documentaries where um, you have some people with uh, people who need to be interviewed to support their drug habit and you have some, uh, you know, um, Getty images. Uh, anyway, it's an absolutely atrocious thing that um, also contradicts this course pretty much uh, completely. Uh, so, um, Anyway, that was kind of embarrassing. So I'm extra interested in getting this part of the story right, which the, um, the documentary got pretty damn wrong. So one of the areas where we share with Thomas Piketty, the author of the book, the documentary allegedly pertained to, um, is that... Um, we understand the um, historical period um, between 1945 and 1991 to be an exceptional one. Uh, that um, the world in which we lived uh, during the Cold War was um, uh, not a world on anybody's map. Uh, it was not an anticipated world, and it um, was based on a lot of things that we didn't really understand. At the time, it seemed a logical consequence that we'd be living in this world where the wealth gap was getting smaller, where literacy rates were rising, where um, uh, religious movements were losing their political relevance, etc., um, we all know that was a, a flash in the pan. Um, that probably the best book that really addressed what we might think of as the, the West's uh, Cold War illusions uh, was probably Dune. It would have been a very courageous book to publish in 1965. And um, I... And I was trying to explain to my students uh, when I last time I taught this course um, all the different ways that Dune was shocking and courageous. And the problem was that I so I was showing them David Lynch's adaptation of Dune from 1984, where, as John Hodgman says, all of the characters are sexy and deformed at the same time. Um, so. Uh, but the problem was that I actually couldn't show my students how uncanny the images were to people in 1984 because they live in a different world. So there's this pause, you know, at this point Donald Trump's been in power for two years. And I say to my students, 
Now in this opening scene, you might not find this uncanny, but people in 1984 would have found it ridiculous that the um, ruler of the known universe uh, was in a throne room and everything was made out of gold. The idea that, you know, we would, uh, we would have monarchs sitting on gold thrones that, that, um, that a head of state wouldn't embarrass themselves by surrounding themselves in gold. Uh, you know, this is inconceivable in the age of Trump. And then they start doing the synopsis of, you know, how the world that Dune is set in came to be. And they refer to something called the Great Revolt. And I said, now in the book, they don't call it the Great Revolt. They call it the Butlerian Jihad. But in this movie, they say the Great Revolt because in 1984, almost no one knew what jihad meant in the English-speaking world. Uh, so already our, our horizons of expectations, our sense of what's normal, what is permanent in history versus what is ephemeral, um, is tacking towards Frank Herbert's worldview where he thought that the things that people believed in the 1960s were inexorable, permanent changes to human civilization would be things that humans wouldn't even remember. And uh, that's one of the things that's interesting about teaching the Cold War order. So first we have to talk about how the Cold War order came into being. So, in the 19th century, there's this emerging global consensus in favor of capitalism. Uh, the old style European empires increasingly move towards processes we might call neo-colonialism, where they begin granting more and more self-rule and nominal democratic rights to their colonies. But, um, uh, but of course keeps strengthening the extractive systems. One of the first real signposts to that is something called the Indian Mutiny in 1857. Now, of course, it's an outrageous name for a nearly successful independence war. Um, the, uh, there's a massive rebellion against British rule in India on the subcontinent and many, many different constituencies of people participated in it. Uh, and they were up against the British East Indies Company, which is a classic old mercantilist company that regulated prices, regulated wages, controlled trade through choke points. And in order to be able to pocket the money uh, or pocket a significant share of the money that was extracted from India, the British East Indies Company had to um, uh, didn't had to pay for the costs of ruling India and the costs of putting down rebellions. Well, they um, they cut corners. They were cheap. They um, they were just like. Um, you know, those, uh, those early uh, Genovese merchants that the Portuguese feared would not invest enough in their own defense of the plantations. And so consequently, the um, revolt was initially very successful because the British East Indies Company, competing with increasingly capitalist companies, was choosing to cut its operating budget. And 
this meant fewer boots on the ground. Consequently, the British East India Company had to be bailed out. The actual British Navy had to invade India. The British state had to take on the liabilities of running India and introduced a new system called the British Raj. And the British Raj, this is going from the East Indies Company to the British Raj is this example of the older European empires buying into the logic of capitalism. Now, the British government would invest in railways, the British government would invest in troops, and corporations would simply walk off with the profits. India would run at a loss on the government's balance sheet, but at a massive profit on the country's balance sheet. And that's an essential feature of the open door theory of liberal capitalism. And so whether people were part of new empires like the German empire or uh, um, older empires that were back on their feet, whether they denied being an empire like the United States, um, there was this expanding system of more and more of the world coming under the sway of an imperial capitalist power. In the Spanish-American War, the United States really emerged in 1898 through 1901 as just another one of these powers. Uh, in fact, their occupation of the Philippines is considered to be one of the longest, most brutal um, imperial occupations. Uh, over a million Filipino people died uh, resisting the United States occupation. Um, and uh, it seemed like the world was on just the track that Karl Marx had talked about, where, um, there, um, where there were these expanding empires going into the periphery, pulling in raw materials, all this manufacturing and banking, more and more wealth being concentrated. And then some, something weird happened. And we often think of there being the one revolution, but it's really important to recognize that um, there was, there was a more general process to what brought about um, anti-capitalist revolutions in the early 20th century. And in both cases, the anti-capitalist revolutions happened in unexpected places. In, they happened during war, first of all. Um, in Mexico, the um, Mexico had become a place where imperial powers were competing for influence. The government of Germany had invested massively in pulling Mexico subtly out of America's political sphere by granting and guaranteeing huge numbers of loans to the Mexican government. Mexican government was a, um, a liberal authoritarian government uh, led by a fellow named Porfirio Diaz, who um, had been enacting a brutal program of capitalist land reform in Mexico. 
where um, uh, in the Mexican social contract, land had largely been collectively owned up until uh, the adoption of a new constitution in 1857. Uh, so most people who farmed, who lived on the land, were peasants who had lived on lands, uh, common lands held by the church or common lands held by an indigenous aristocrat um, whose family had held that land before the Spanish even came. There was a third type of land holding, one that's reminiscent of what I said about Andrew Jackson, about the gauchos, about the llaneros, and that is um, there were military colonists in Mexico's north. Here, fighting men and their followers had been given huge chunks of land um, in order to, uh, mainly for ranching rather than farming, and, uh, and to, uh, carry out private wars against uh, the Yaqui Indians of uh, Northern Mexico. This, um, so there was that kind of land holding in Mexico until in the 1870s, Porfirio Diaz began auctioning that land as per constitutional amendments. Now the author of this idea was Mexico's first indigenous president, Benito Juarez. Juarez was a, a, a true blue liberal. He truly believed in liberalism. He was a um, very dark-skinned person, could not pass as Spanish, um, and had grown up in a, um, an indigenous village uh, as a peasant. Um, his parents were peasants, and their parents had been peasants stretching back uh, thousands of years. And... Uh, he had been part of the social movement that began in the late 18th century to end uh, school instruction in indigenous languages. So um, because you couldn't read the newspaper, you couldn't have standing in court, if you spoke a language other than Spanish, um, you were a marginalized person. And so he had been fighting very strongly for uh, Spanish language instruction and efforts to um, reduce the use of indigenous languages and reduce the amount of writing that the church was doing in them. Um, he also saw that um, he was living in a feudal society uh, with very limited opportunities. He made it to the city. He worked his ass off. He obtained a law degree. And he believed that if the profit motive and private land were just introduced into indigenous peasant cultures, people would work hard, they would buy their land, they would improve it, etc. And he set about, um, and he fought a war over this called the War of Reform. We don't know what Benito Juarez would have done when he saw what his policy actually did. Because, of course, the land was auctioned, none of the people living on it could afford to outbid uh, monopolists. Monopolists might be willing to overpay for land, but it'd be worth it because they could then concentrate that land and they could turn the peasants into what were called debt peons. The term um, sharecropper was used in the United States, where 
in order to lease your land, you have to sign an agreement that the things you raise there will only be sold to your landlord. Then your landlord sets a price for rent, he sets a price for the commodities. The amount you make from the commodities always exceeds your rent. And so you fall further into debt every year. And you're then tied to the land, not by feudal obligation, but by capitalist finance mechanics. So that was going on in Mexico. Um, and uh, by 1910, uh, there was an urban middle class that um, saw Diaz as an embarrassment. He was old, he was losing his memory, and he was an authoritarian. Um, and they felt that, they didn't imagine indigenous people getting in on democracy, but they thought they might have a go with it. And uh, so, Diaz ran in an election. There was widespread cheating. It was announced that he had won and the country would not accept him as the legitimate ruler. And a slow motion Mexican civil war began in 1910. Now the country that um, had the resources and the incentives to keep the Mexican government in power, there was the United States, they weren't that concerned. They figured that both candidates had ties to the U.S. They'd be fine either way. However, the Germans had bet everything on having a friendly ruler in Mexico. And it's the Germans who backed General Victoriano Huerta to seize power as a conservative authoritarian leader in 1912. Huerta ends up fighting three very different sorts of movements. There are the constitutionalists, the people who had backed President Madero, um, and these guys were, you know, sort of um, politically liberal, more so than the previous government, but not clear how much more so. Then there were the Zapatistas, the followers of Emiliano Zapata. These were Mayan peasants. And of course, an iteration of their movement still rules parts of Mexico up to the present day. Uh, the Zapatistas were infused with a number of beliefs that people often find confusing to put together. Um, they believed strongly in... Um, collective land holding and other things we might associate with socialism. They believe and believe up to the present day that the reason these things are good is because God wants this. Uh, they believe that Mayans are the most faithful to Christianity. They believe they have a special role in seeing God's uh, vision lived out on earth. And so they practice very conservative gender politics um, and, uh, hold, uh, and hold land in common. These guys certainly made for some trouble. The Mayan, there had been a long-term Mayan insurgency in Mexico for about half of the 19th century called the Caste War, but it wasn't, its chief military officer was not Emiliano Zapata, it was a talking cross. And uh, the Talking Cross actually did much better against uh, the Mexican army than Emiliano Zapata. 
Uh, the Talking Cross really put up, I would say, one of the most impressive civil war efforts uh, Latin America's ever seen. Anyway, then there was the Pancho Villa faction. Uh, Villa was referred to consistently as a bandit, um, which he was. Um, he grew up in the military colonies of the North, as did many of the leaders of the Constitutionalists. And what Villa did was he saw how it was that Zapata was able to sustain his army. That what Zapata would do is he would seize land that had been privatized and give it back. And it would go into cultivation the revolution would start making money and they'd be popular in the territory that they'd seized. So Pancho Villa, it appears originally only as a tactical measure began doing this and grew increasingly popular. He went from being viewed as just a local bandit raider and criminal to the leader of some kind of redistributive communitarian crusade. And initially, these guys are fighting um, Venustiano Carranza and Alvaro Obregón, uh, uh, who are based in the north because the, um, the army, the actual army, is still under the command of Huerta, still under, still basically controlled by the Germans. And they're now fighting, the constitutionalists are now fighting Via. And they're doing so with a lot of tacit American support. The Americans are helping out a whole bunch and looks like the constitutionalists will win. And then 1917 happens and the United States of America is pulled into the First World War. Now, the First World War had been hard on Huerta and his army because the German money was drying up. The German arms and resources increasingly never made it to Mexico and were stuck in Europe. The United States now had the same problem. And uh, they, um, and so the constitutionalists found that they were losing resources. And it's at this point that things get weird. The constitutionalists realize the only way they can beat Pancho Villa is at Pancho Villa's game. So the constitutionalists begin evicting landlords and handing land back to the peasants. Inadvertently, Emiliano Zapata produces a national consensus in favor of what we would call a socialist land reform. And if anybody stops doing this, they start falling behind their competitors in the war. Uh, now, there are lots of amusing moments in Mexican history that I have to skip. Um, the Pershing Expedition is a wonderful story in all of this where Pancho Villa realizes he's out of gas. He's being absolutely hammered by the constitutionalists and he has the most brilliant tactical move, which seemed insane. He was down to 300 troops in El Paso 
So he attacked the United States. He marched his troops across the border into the U.S. and attacked a small military installation there and then ran back into Mexico. And so the United States, true to the form we know today, dispatches an 18,000-person army to find Pancho Villa. And let me tell you, if you're going through the mountains of northern Mexico, there's nothing like an 18,000-person army to conduct a really effective search. Uh, this, um, you know, uh, so the Pershing expedition has one effect, which is that um, uh, he, they tie down 18,000 American troops. The other effect of the Pershing expedition, of course, is that Pancho Villa becomes a national hero and thousands of men flock to his banner and he rebuilds his army in about three weeks. Uh, and that should give one a sense of how much people had come to chafe under the Monroe Doctrine by the beginning of the 20th century, that this inadvertent national consensus could emerge in Mexico so that when they start writing their constitution in 1917, they nationalize all the land. And uh, then uh, it takes them a while to do this. Some of it's never really enforced. And then they create this system uh, called the ejido, um, where if you form a cooperative, you apply to get this land, um, and they will give you collective land, provided you administer it as a co-op. Um, this was part of the Mexican Constitution until our intervention. In uh, 1993, we demanded that this be stripped out of the Mexican Constitution so we would sign NAFTA. Uh, so, and that's why the Zapatistas reformed in 1994, because of the destruction of the collective lands. This is a really important story that we miss in the geopolitics of the early 20th century. Right, we all know that Trotsky flees Stalin's Russia to Mexico. But what we often forget is that Mexico is the other anti-capitalist revolutionary state. And although it is forced to make all kinds of concessions to its neighbor in the US over time, we have to remember that there's this decade where it looks like capitalism is hitting a wall. Now, of course, the more, the, the more important story is the rise of the Soviet Union. And it, uh, it comes out of a theme I, I cannot stress enough. I, I know I, I, I say it too often. It comes out of Vladimir Lenin's profound insight that modifies Marxism. Now, in Marxism, you can never because it's kind of a religious discourse. It's, you're not allowed to say that there was anything that the founding prophet had not imagined or thought. If you're called, if you do that, uh, you're called a revisionist. There's, there's a word for you. And, um, but of course, the reality is that every great socialist leader or, or Marxist leader was a revisionist that, um, and Lenin's theoretical contribution, he has many, but the important one for our purposes 
is that Marx had theorized that um, the more alienated people become from the means of production, the more you don't own your tools, you don't own your time, you don't own your home, the more, he didn't of course make this term, this is made by a revision of a revisionist, uh, the more social disarticulation, all of those phenomena um, that if you eventually end up with a, uh, where um, you're the proletariat, you have nothing. You have nothing other than your time, which is bought and sold. Then you will achieve this maximum alienation. You will rise up against capitalism and smash it. So Marx had always believed that the revolution would begin in London or Berlin because these were the most industrialized, most alienated places. Uh, people were in no way tied to the land. Lenin, his insight proved correct, but is sad for our purposes in the present. Lenin imagined who we would be much more clearly, that um, people who are completely alienated socially, psychologically, and economically, um, eat corn chips and watch Netflix and masturbate. Like that's, that's, that's what maximum alienation produces. Um, and so Lenin's theory was quite different. It's that, and I, I, I bang this drum on my blog a lot, in order to imagine a different future, you must be able to remember a different past. The ability to imagine a revolutionary future is contingent on a memory of it not always being like this. Uh, the uh, British Columbian author, Brian Fawcett, um, wrote a, a really great book on that theme. I mean, he didn't really write it. The provenance of the book is bizarre, but uh, that's, that's the final observation. To imagine a future, you must remember a past. So Lenin looked at Russia as the perfect place to stage the revolution. He emancipated the Russian communists or his faction of them from a Berlin-centric European communist movement and instead focused on the material particularities of Russia. Russia existed at the periphery, but it was industrializing, but it was industrializing in a bizarre and distinctive way. What was happening was Russia, in Russia, serfdom hadn't been abolished. So it wasn't merely that a lord had peasants, they owned peasants. Um, similarly, the, Russia had never had a true aristocracy. The boyars were people whose title came from the czar and they could lose that title. Um, and so they were more like um, the gentry, the class that ran capitalism in other countries, the class that displaced the aristocrats. So Russia's boyars, their service gentry, had a logical method for industrializing and leapfrogging Europe to get ahead of it. Um, 
Yes, that's that's quite right, Archie. The um, uh, there was an official abolition of serfdom, uh, and uh, early in this process. So the first factories in uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg, what the boyars did was they built the factory, and then they went to their feudal land, and they simply moved their peasants off the land into the factory. In other parts of Europe, that was like a five-generation process. In England, that was a 25-generation process. Normally, you'd go through the process of a gentleman would take over the land from an aristocrat, and then the peasants would become peons, and then they might lose their land, and then they'd become migrant laborers. And then only after becoming migrant laborers would they then migrate to the cities and seek work there. And all of those things being nominally consensual. In the case of Russia, you didn't have any say as to where you were going to work as a serf. You just went. And uh, that was the cultural equipment that was in effect. So there are all these people in these factories in Moscow and St. Petersburg with a very clear memory that it hasn't always been like this. And it's that eventuality that then collides with war, that um, you have all of these people at war, at the front. There's no national narrative for what they're doing in the war. No one can explain what their war aims are. And um, it's in this context that Lenin and company are organizing. And they're correct, right? They, they, it's, 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 dem it's demonstrable that uh, it's in Russia and Mexico, it's in places where people's lived experience changes incredibly rapidly, where there is a social memory of another order. And uh, it's in those places that the conditions for revolution appear. And of course, the other feature of those places is that these are meat grinder wars that they're having to conscript everybody into. The combination of so many people participating in war, being armed, believing that they're entitled to things from their government by fighting for it, uh, that goes together with these experiences of radical dispossession. And between those two things, we suddenly get these anti-capitalist revolutionary states. This changes people's calculations. Now, Lenin does not survive long. Um, he is dead in early 1924. His revolution only ends in 1921. So we don't really have any idea of, we don't have much of an idea of what Lenin's revolutionary state would have looked like. Um, Stalin's revolutionary state uh, rolls out and it's highly effective in a couple of ways, the first of which is uh, propaganda. Um, Stalin, I think, is underestimated as a genius communicator because 
it's often true that people who are not articulate are not thought of as brilliant communicators. Fortunately, again, Donald Trump is making it easier for me to make the arguments I make. Uh, there's nothing conventionally articulate about Donald Trump, but he's a brilliant communicator. Uh, many of the rhetorical flourishes that I associate with Trump, um, we can see their, some of their earliest and most successful enactments with Stalin. Um, Stalin's willingness to publicly hurt his children, for instance, um, is very much part of the way he builds a very particular sort of image that's grounded deeply in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Central argument of Stalin's state from a, um, uh, uh, the central argument of Stalin's state uh, from a theological perspective is we know from the Bible that um, good people punish evildoers and they reward the good. It is the sole province of God to punish the good. Uh, and a lot of Stalin's successful propaganda is about playing on people's experience of abusive family dynamics, their knowledge of Eastern Orthodox theology to, um, to appear godlike, to be terrifying, to violate social mores and norms uh, in the structure of his family uh, and then enact that on a national stage. There's a point uh, during the purges when Stalin is um, approached by a number of advisors who say, the overwhelming opinion of the public is that innocent people are being um, sent to the gulag and executed in large numbers. We have to do something about this. It sounds like, no, that's the impression I'm trying to give people. Um, that people are paralyzed in situations like that. Um, if they don't know that there's anything they can do that will protect them, if they have no idea what will make them safe, they will feel unsafe all the time. And that produces a compliant population. Uh, so this is effective internally. His external propaganda is driven by something that is still around today, um, which is uh, despot tourism. Um, there are um, political parties uh, right here that um, still uh, run on despotism tourism. Um, the uh, so, you know, during the Sino-Soviet split in the 1960s, right, the Communist Party of Canada split into the Communist Party of Canada and the Communist Party of Canada Marxist-Leninist. And the Marxist-Leninists sided with China and Albania. Everybody was really surprised when, after Nixon went to China, the CPCML stopped siding with China and just stuck with Albania, this one state. Well, and the reason for that is that Albania 
is a great place for a holiday. Um, they have all these lovely beaches and um, tremendous destination tourism resorts um, that were uh, given, uh, and these holidays were given out as rewards for people in Enver Hoxha Albanian communism tribute parties all over the world. Um, after Albania fell, I, I asked uh, the now um, deceased Charles Boylan, like, where are you going now for your holidays? Um, but um, within three years, they developed a relationship with Robert Mugabe, and um, they started going on safaris every year. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the regular communists mainly went for uh, beach vacations in the Ukraine, or in Cuba. Um, and it's this very strange kind of tourism that um, Stalin pioneers in the 20s and 30s, that he invites um, writers and opinion leaders from throughout Western democracies who are members of parties affiliated with his Communist Party and they're shown, they're taken on these tours that show the greatness, the fairness, and the prosperity of Stalin's Russia. <clears throat> oh, yes. Yes, it, uh, it certainly, um, uh, yeah. And, uh, and, of course, Assad did this with Eva Bartlett, right? Um, this is a, it's a, it's a common, uh, it's a common tactic. And what this did produced good things in interwar Europe and America. That interwar Europe and America were increasingly not competing with what Stalin's Russia was. They were competing with what Stalin's Russia claimed to be. And uh, this produced real pressures on the state um uh in the capitalist democratic world uh that uh, people's expectations of what a government could do uh how well it could look after people's welfare and stalin did other really smart stuff like his constitution which is the most liberal constitution for instance it establishes the right to uh, access to printing resources for opposition movements because freedom of expression shouldn't be contingent on the money you have to print or uh, broadcast your views. So there's this great rhetorical enterprise going on in the 20s and 30s um, of, um, of the possibilities of communism, of the possibilities of socialism. And then, of course, we have the reality on the ground. After the First World War, there's a process called demobilization. It's brutal. You end up with all these combat veterans with PTSD or shell shock, um, neurasthenia, etc., begging on the street uh, with no health care, um, people with multiple amputations, uh, just uh, living in shacks. Um, and it's a humiliation. There's terrible unemployment and terrible political instability. So remember that even in Canada, the uh, really the, the most sort of um, 
compliant, milquetoast state. Um, there was a revolution in Manitoba. The cops joined the revolution in Manitoba. It seized control of the city of Winnipeg, and we had to invade Manitoba from Ontario. They sent the army. So, you know, this was a, the demobilization after the First World War was so mismanaged that we had to invade Manitoba. Uh, and there are stories like that from all over the industrialized world. There are two states that really did tip over, Mexico and Russia, but all of these other states had really scary near misses. But at the time, people felt that um, capitalism had won, that modern liberal capitalism had won the war. And so in the 1920s, we see the kind of public policies we've had here for the past uh, 20 years. So uh, massive transfer of debt to consumers. Everybody's buying stuff on installment plans. Everybody has about eight different kinds of credit. The wealth, the, the wealth gap keeps getting bigger and to sustain consumer spending, uh, we extend more and more credit. This is how the 20s runs. Uh, and then, of course, capitalism embarrasses itself. It shits the bed. It, uh, it stops doing any of the things it says it should be doing, and we enter into the Great Depression. Now, one of the first effects of the Great Depression is um, bankruptcies of lower-order governments. Towns and cities start going bankrupt. And this is particularly worrying in America, but it's a problem all over the industrialized world. And it's really in addressing this problem that a key advisor to the wartime prime minister of Britain, David Lloyd George, John Maynard Keynes comes into view. And John Maynard Keynes makes a series of recommendations about how to modify capitalism. Um, capitalism had lacked guardrails up to this point. When there had been major downturns and recessions, um, capitalism had, had, had to bail itself out. J.P. Morgan became famous in the U.S. not just because he was rich, but because every time there was a recession, he would personally convene a bailout committee and he would get together with the other industrialists who are benefiting from capitalism and they would bring in an economic stimulus package to right the ship. Well, there's no Morgan. And by, the, by 1930, those guys are gone but on top of that, there's just too much debt. The, the downturn is too big. The private sector does attempt some bailouts and they're just a drop in the bucket. And it's at this point that people begin listening to Keynes. They don't listen to all of his ideas at once. His ideas are grudgingly accepted one by one. Oh, I missed the trust busting section because it's an American story that, um, uh, has surprisingly little global relevance. Uh, but no, the trust-busting era um, was from uh, 1900 to uh, 1916, roughly. 
So it, it precedes the interwar period. A lot of the legislation is still there, but the interwar Republican presidents don't want to dismantle the trusts. So the legislation's unenforced. Once Teddy Roosevelt is gone, really, a lot of that is dead letter legislation. So in, um, where am I? Oh, yes. So the first thing Keynes says is, no national government of any major industrialized power can go bankrupt. Grab all the debt and put it on the national balance sheet. Stop the cascading bankruptcies. Start bailing things out. And it's the national state, not local government, that should be doing this. Local government up to that point had been providing most social programs. So housing, um, food relief, welfare, public health, all those things were government programs starting in the 1880s, but they came out of cities. They did not come out of national government. And so one of the most important features of Keynes, even before we get to his ideas about economic stimulus and the public versus the private sector, is that it's Keynes who says, uh, our national governments need to be a one-stop shop when it comes to anything that's going to have a significant macroeconomic effect. That has some stabilizing features. And as different policies of Keynes are tested and start to work, this creates openers for Keynes's other policies. And uh, a central orthodoxy of John Maynard Keynes is the capitalism on its own will polarize wealth too much. It will, it will again and again do what happened in the 20s, where you want wealth better distributed to maintain economic growth so that your consumer spending can be high. This orthodoxy about a middle class that can spend is not an American orthodoxy. It's an orthodoxy adopted by Americans during the FDR period from John Maynard Keynes. And let me be clear, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, John Maynard Keynes, David Lloyd George, Ramsey McDonald, these people are there to save capitalism. That's what they think they're doing. They don't think this is socialism. They're looking at Stalin's Russia, and it doesn't, there's nothing about Stalin's Russia that goes, oh yeah, that's a liberal democracy with Keynesianism. It's a whole other thing. It's bizarre and terrifying. So Keynes then puts forward this central idea, which is used to manage our economies up until the 1970s, which is when the economy is booming, government spending should fall. Governments should save money during economic booms uh, when people need their programs less. And when the economy starts going into a downturn, the government needs to spend more to prevent these periodic recessions. So Keynes recognizes that periodic recessions, wealth polarization are features of capitalism that need to be modified 
in order for it to keep delivering for people. Um, it's useful to think of one of Keynes, one of the most important projects that's exemplary of this Keynesian turn is the Tennessee Valley Authority, right? The um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt through the Works Progress Administration builds this enormous hydroelectric and irrigation dam, floods all kinds of territory, um, but gets all kinds of people to work and produces a public asset that then sells cheap electricity to industry. The reason I, I invoke the TVA in particular is that this idea that natural systems, unregulated systems are gonna fuck up and that human beings need to use science to optimize natural systems better than nature can optimize them is an idea they're applying to everything. So the idea that you can run the hydrology of the central Appalachians better is of a piece with the idea that you can run the free market better than itself. And so, and it's, it's interesting to note that this love of hydroelectric mega projects is really, it's, it's part of the global zeitgeist, right? Stalin's Russia loves the big, the, loves the mega project in very similar ways. And they often see the mega projects as forms of social engineering. It's not like we have today where mega projects are now built by people living, you know, in uh, dormitories um, and uh, on uh, two-week shifts doing a lot of stimulants and uh, sexually assaulting the local population. In this era, the mega project is seen as a way to take semi-sedentary and itinerant people, herd them into new towns, get them married, have a little community hall. So the mega project is also part of this social engineering enterprise of making people orderly, just making society orderly, just as they're doing with the chaotic systems of nature and the market. In, uh, so in, this creates an interesting opener for the next phase. The Second World War is often misnarrated. You'll get the shortest Second World War narration, uh, probably, that anyone will give you for, you know, uh, a class on the 20th century. The key thing about the Second World War is um, the name of the uh, people who win. Uh, you'll notice that in our social memory, of who wins the war. We call the winners the Allies, which is bizarre and stupid. It's the name of every side in every war. Um, that's not what our side was called during that war. But we've renamed our side in the war to obscure the true nature of the order that followed. The name of our side in the war is the United Nations. 
the United Nations is an unequal coalition of three empires. The most powerful empire, the United States, the second most, the Soviet Union, and the collapsing empire that was the greatest that essentially destroys itself in order to win the war, the British. So we have to remember then that in 1943, there's an agreement that the world will be ruled by the United Nations. Uh, and the United Nations begin creating new institutions that are part of the hegemony that they enact. The most important and powerful institution the United Nations created is the World Bank. And the World Bank, of course, has a set of rules that um, there is one reserve currency. You remember the reserve currencies from the Roman Empire? The reserve currency is the U.S. dollar. Um, uh, oh, RT, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't notice your question from before. Um, no, the loss of economic capacity uh, was not really a result of, uh, of the trust busting. It was simply the size of the whole. The trust busting had been quite ineffective, actually, at reducing ownership concentration in the economy. It was a rhetorical project that Teddy Roosevelt was involved in much more than a, a successful one. In any case, that, um, to just uh, get back to here, the World Bank is an institution and it's the first United Nations institution. It has coercive power, unlike many of the later United Nations institutions. It can make decisions that affect countries against their will. Um, it will use this power to implement structural adjustment later in the 20th century and just seize control of finance departments of countries. Um, it can control, it controls what currency uh, the major goods are traded in, and it maintains that reserve currency to make that currency hegemonic. The most obvious thing that should tell us something about the United Nations order is that in order to become the president of the World Bank, you must be a citizen of the United States of America. Just in case anyone was wondering if there was like an imperial structure here. No, a lot of what makes Donald Trump laughable is he is smashing institutions that his predecessors built to control the world. And he is just like smashing his own tools for hegemony. Um, NATO as well, right? These are, uh, so the World Bank comes into being. Another thing that then comes into being, importantly, the United Nations Security Council. Right? Again, this still has, this has coercive power. And it's got a list of who the permanent members are, just in case anybody's asleep at the switch there. There's a list of the countries that are the first tier countries and the list of the countries that are not. Equally, perhaps more instructive though, is the United Nations General Assembly. Now the United Nations General Assembly is mostly a stupid waste of time. 
I don't really see why it is fair that um, China and Palau have the same number of votes in the assembly, given that one has 1.2 billion people and one has 12,000. Um, you know, I'm not sure making its votes binding would serve any just purpose. But the thing I want you to remember, and again, let's remember where the capital of the world is, the United Nations capital is in New York City. There it is, yes, and there, there it is. The General Assembly is a very big room. Um, you know how, like the British Columbia legislature started with 45 seats and now it's got 87 and people can't fit. And there's this big, you know, rumbling debate of we really, really need to expand this building. Um, you know, we've only doubled the number of seats in 150 years, but it's, uh, it's a problem. No one's had to expand the General Assembly, even though the number of countries in the world was tiny at the end of the Second World War. What the General Assembly had all that room for all those chairs and all those desks built into it in 1945. Because what we forget when we think about the Cold War is that like any other big long conflict, we overfocus on the points of difference and we elide the points of agreement. Fundamentally, the United Nations was an agreement among three powers. And in order to get the help of the Soviet Union and the United States, what Britain had to agree to was that the old European empires would be broken up, that their colonies would become independent. Decolonization is baked into the United Nations order. And the reason it's baked into it is because it's an, the United Nations order was an agreement for the two senior partners to get to compete over the decolonizing countries. So rather than seeing, so the Cold War order, yes, like these, these powers did not love each other, but the Cold War order was one collaboratively built by them to create a set of rules and a set of parameters for their competition. A competition they understood in social scientific terms. Both powers believed in the primacy of reason and that one of them had the correct theory of human society and the other one didn't. And they would find out who was correct by seeing who got all the colonies in the end. Um, so it was also, a, so, there's a clear description of what we're competing over. There's a clear description of victory conditions. Of course, the United States bakes in some advantages for itself. The ruble's not a reserve currency. Um, and they try to give compensatory advantages to the Soviet Union, but it's always a, it's always a slanted board. It's always a stacked deck. And uh, this... Uh, but it's, it's instructive now to go back to Keynes because the United States comes out of the war believing that Keynes's modifications of capitalism are the way to go. And 
the U.S. project during the Cold War is, of course, both sides want to use as little money and as few lives as possible to win this fight. And so a lot of the fight is conducted through propaganda and incentives. So one of the first problems where the U.S. is at a disadvantage, the Russians are advertising, everybody has free healthcare, everybody has free post-secondary education, everybody has free housing, you can have those things. Racial discrimination is outlawed here, blah, blah, blah. There's the United States um, with this um, hideous slave society still running the southeastern third of the country. Um, and with terrible poverty all over the place, lack of access to medical care, lack of access to universities. And so one of the, one of the things that then becomes attached to Keynesianism, which was not a thing Keynes ever sought to attach himself, was that Keynes, the, the, tool, the toolbox Keynes gave people built the welfare state. And the welfare state had a clear purpose. The purpose of the welfare state was to say to anybody watching, whatever the Russians can deliver, we will match it in terms of, pro of social entitlement, in terms of government services. If um, whatever they can do under communism, you can still get that without becoming a communist. We will match them service for service. Now, when we tell the story of Medicare in Canada or something like this, everybody who's a socialist likes, you know, talking about how we did this. We built this welfare state. We built these programs. Here's Tommy Douglas. He gave us Medicare. He's our hero. It's not helpful. I'm not saying we did nothing. But you make mistakes when you think about how to create social change if your history of how social change happens is based on a set of self-serving, self-aggrandizing myths. The primary structure that held up the welfare state was the Berlin Wall. The primary incentive that made the welfare state come into being in Canada or West Germany or France was hundreds of intercontinental ballistic missiles pointed at us. These are the big powerful forces that gave us the welfare state. And uh, what that means is that we have a generation of people, several generations of people, who massively underestimate the resistance from elites and the resource requirements for social movements when they narrate themselves as having won these programs. The people who made the big material sacrifices for us to have these programs didn't live here. They lived in Warsaw. They lived in Omsk. They lived in shitty Warsaw Pact countries under grinding oppression. It was their sacrifices that produced our welfare state by and large. And another thing that especially Canadians are guilty of here is a misunderstanding of the Medicare narrative. And I use this mythological narrative too. I used it to 
win a debate uh, during the referendum. Uh, it's a very handy myth. But central, central to our myth is um, the idea that of what was, of who Lester Pearson was. So let's be clear, Lester Pearson was a guy who lived in America, who had Canadian citizenship, who worked on and off for the Canadian government doing stuff, um, but was an architect of the United Nations, an architect of the UN system, and closely, closely aligned with America's Cold War hawks. When he was sent back to Canada to bail out the Liberal Party, um, he was attacked as a foreign agent. And this was not entirely incorrect. Lester Pearson was largely a puppet of John F. Kennedy, who personally hated John Diefenbaker and sought to remove him after Diefenbaker deliberately injured Kennedy's back during a photo op. Um, so... Pearson uh, is, sent to, uh, is sent to Canada to get us in order because America, because the Cold War hawks in America are going, look, we got to just, we have to beat the Russians. Like there's just no two ways about it. We will do anything to beat the Russians. We are prepared to like let black people vote everywhere. We're prepared to invade Alabama with our own army just to get that done. So of course, we'll throw a bunch of money at this problem. Pearson's uh, coming into power in Canada was a dry run for something called the Alliance for Progress. It was a massive uh, effort to turn the School of America's system that I mentioned before, which had now become a continent-wide system, AFP was the economic uh, and uh, social policy half of it. America was handing out subsidies, didn't hand one out to Canada, we were rich enough, to all kinds of governments all through Latin America to bring in welfare state style programs through AFP at the same time as they're staging military coups and torturing people through SOA because to them, it's the same project. It's beat communism at all costs. People find Lyndon Johnson a really weird guy because he was prepared to endorse the March on Selma while he was escalating in Vietnam. But there's no conflict in Johnson's mind. These are both measures to stop communism from winning. And what made the Cold War hawks of the Democratic Party unique was that there was nothing they weren't willing to try. There was no, uh, there, was, uh, there was nothing that was off the table. So let's be clear, Lester Pearson was sent here to bring in Medicare. Uh, he was sent here to bring in these social programs. And uh, yes, they might've done it a slightly different way. Um, but the idea that Tommy Douglas holding the balance of power caused this, is actually a pretty dubious one. Um, we keep ourselves warm at night with that idea that it was like the old socialist preacher from the prairies who had tried to bring in Medicare in uh, Saskatchewan and failed, um, that it was him. 
and not the machinations of Kennedy's foreign policy apparatus that uh, largely chose for Canada to embark in, on becoming a welfare state. So um, anyway, that's, um, this class is a little unbalanced. I think there's some stuff I promised to talk about today that I didn't get to because of my love of the Mexican people. Uh, but uh, yeah, any questions or comments? I'm also gonna read up this uh, thing and see if I've missed any of the typed comments from earlier, but go ahead. So I, I have one question, Stuart. Um, when you're talking about um, Keynes and, and his core idea of um, having restricting government spending during economic boom times and then spending when the economy goes down to help mitigate the boom bust cycle, um, what's your opinion on how good of an idea that is? Um. Well, if my goal were to maintain economic growth in a capitalist uh, economy, um, I think it's a pretty solid one. Um, of course, I don't want to do those things, so it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. Um, what I would say, and we'll get to this in the, uh, when we get to the rise of neoliberalism and Milton Friedman, is there were theoretical errors in Keynes that evidence did end up bearing out, um, and that... Often we think that it's just like mean, shitty people taking over when the Chicago School of Economics moves our economics to the right. But the Chicago School would not have had the opener that it did had it not predicted things that Keynesians didn't and explained the consequences of those things. So what... Um, the best way to sort of describe the criticism, uh, and I don't want to get too far into it because we, we do have time later, is um, economic stimulus, it turns out, is uh, a little like heroin. Um, you develop a tolerance, especially if you don't space the doses out. So there was a lot of poor dose spacing. It's possible that the borrowing and stimulus, if people had been really disciplined and only used the heroin when they needed to, that they wouldn't have developed the tolerance. But I'm, I'm, I'm convinced by Friedman and Hayek. I think that they're right, that um, because human consciousness doesn't make corporate decisions, it doesn't make the economy, right? The, um, uh, you know, if a CEO's brain starts wanting to do something anti-capitalist, the corporation just rips off its head and replaces it with another brain. It'll do what it's supposed to do. But human consciousness nevertheless is part of um, the economy. It does help to produce our awareness. And I think that the expectation of future stimulus does, once it becomes part of the psychological and predictive architecture of people, it makes the future stimulus less effective. And that's essentially what happened, is that um, people kept having to do higher and higher doses of stimulus to produce less and less effect. And then eventually you're not even getting high anymore and the economy is continuing to contract. 
And uh, so I, I, mean, I that, do think that's, that's like the six trillion. That's like the six trillion dollars they just gave away in the last few weeks, right? Like, yeah, I mean, that's not. I mean, let's be clear. That's not Keynesian stimulus. That's a very different market interaction. But um, sure. it. Uh, but yeah, there there are diminishing returns. Uh, once people start expecting these things. Uh, other questions? 